0: We are in week two in our series through the Lord's Prayer. And if you're new to our church, this is what we're up to for the next, uh, this week included for the next five weeks, we are studying the Lord's Prayer. It's very popular, very common. Many people know it. And uh, so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 6. I want to let you know our workbooks are still available. You get an e-workbook and all that. This is the last time I'm going to make this commercial. And so if you're still missing out, um, you will miss out permanently. And uh, that's just the way it goes. So anyways, get your workbook today. Before uh, it's done being available. You know, we're going to look at the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. And the first petition of the Lord's Prayer is about God's name. And we live in a culture today which is very unique and distinct from the rest of the world. In that our names, our personal names that we go by, they really don't mean very much. Instead, we prioritize other kind of names. And let me give you an example real quick. My name is Philip, which means in Greek, lover of horses. I don't love horses. I don't. I mean, I don't have anything against them, but it's just I don't. I don't ride them. I don't own a horse. My parents didn't own horses or ride horses, so it's kind of like why'd you name me Lover of Horses? (laughs) And it's because I'm named after my grandmother Phyllis, and so that's just the way it goes. I want to make sure you weren't snickering. Yes, I'm named after my grandmother. (laughs) I know there's middle school kids and high school kids here. That's okay. But uh, one of the things we actually focus on when it comes to naming is not necessarily our personal name, but brand names. Brand names mean something to us today. So you associate with some names and not other names because you don't want to be associated with that name, you know, whatever brand name it is. So let let me give you a quick example. This is really good. This worked in the first service. Hopefully it will work with you. But uh, think about this. What comes to your mind when I say the next two brand names? And this is kind of a personal thing. But but think about Just take inventory of what's coming to your mind when you think about this. What kind of person do you think Phil Ward is based on this? Here you go. My wife and I, we shop, not all the time, but many times at Whole Foods. Okay. Let's keep that. I drive a Ford F-150. Okay. And some of you are like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. You think you know me just from these two things. (laughs) And do you see what happens? Like just the car we drive or where we shop, what kind of clothing we wear and all this kind of stuff. We think we know people based on brand name because a name signifies something about the person. Name involves a reputation. And so we see this first petition, hallowed be your name. In other words, we want God's name to be hallowed. Now, think about this. What in the world does that word hallow mean? <laughs> and what does it mean to hallow God's name? Well, what's the big deal about God's name? Shouldn't we care about God as he is, not just his name? And so these are some of the things that Jesus teaches us in the first petition of the Lord's prayer, is that we should be concerned for hallowing God's name. So we need to unpack this and figure out what in the world this means. Here's how Jesus began the prayer, the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew 6, verse 9. Jesus says, pray like this, or pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So Father, (laughs) it's not many words. And yet the words that we have before us are so rich. God, would you help me? to unpack these words, and would you help us as a church to embrace what they mean. God, grant in our minds and our hearts and our wills a yieldedness, so we think your thoughts, we feel as we ought to about you, and that our wills, what we want and desire, will be in conformity to yours. So God, would you grant these things for your glory and for our joy, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, we've been talking about this, this concept for a little while, and you're going to see it played out in the workbook. And middle school students, you're going to camp this coming weekend, and you guys are going to learn about the Lord's Prayer. High school students, you're going the following weekend, you're going to learn about the Lord's Prayer there, and you might hear these two words, so listen up. These two words are very big words. They're big concept words. They're theological words, but they're very, very important. First is transcendence. God is transcendent, which means basically this, that God is outside of time and space. He's otherworldly. He's he's universal. He's supernatural. And and it just means God's majesty, God's greatness, God's grandeur, God's glory. But then God is also imminent. And the word imminent means close. It means near. It means present or among us. There's an affection side of imminence. And we see this in Isaiah 57, verse 15. One of my favorite texts that shows this transcendence and imminence, this, this God is huge and yet God is near us kind of concept. And there the prophet Isaiah writes, for thus says the one, this is God, who is high and lifted up, that's transcendence, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. And this is what God says, I dwell in the high and holy place. So that's his transcendence. But then watch this. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God dwells in eternity. He is high and lifted up. And yet at the same time, God dwells with those who are contrite. And the word contrite, a synonym is repentant. God loves to dwell with those who are humble and repentant. And this God who is high and lifted up above the heavens is also a God who is very near and very close to those who are repentant and those who are humbled. So this is the imminence and the transcendence of God. God is here and near us, but he is also majestic and altogether awesome. And what the Lord's Prayer does is it puts these two things right next to each other, and we see this. We start with our Father, which shows us the imminence of God that he is near us that he is tender and has affections for us and yet he is in heaven. And so these two things are put together the imminence and the transcendence of God. And so we'll start with the imminence. And what we see is in this these two words our father Jesus is teaching us something very important. The first thing he teaches us is the pronoun, pronoun our which helps us to understand that when it comes to what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we need to realize that the priority is not on me as an individual, but the priority is placed upon us as a community of people who are called the church. And we live in America, and America is known around the world as being a society full of rugged individuals where we are all cowboys. We all live on our own. We're all just doing our own thing. No one can tell me what to do, how to think, or anything like that. You do you, I do me, and we'll all leave each other alone. That's America. And yet Christianity is countercultural to that. It's no longer you as an individual, do whatever you want. It's now, no, 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 you as an individual have been placed into a family. And now the we becomes more important than the me. When I was playing baseball at Biola, we were in Hawaii one time, and we were acting a fool. We were just not being sportsmen. We're not having good sportsmanship. So our coach pulled us to the side. We're at Honolulu Stadium. Pulls us right onto the field, and he says this, look down at your chest. What does it say? Biola. And he goes, you guys need to figure out that the name on the front of your jersey matters more than the name on your back of your jersey. (laughs) Okay, coach. (laughs) Bible Institute of Los Angeles. And he said, you represent Jesus on the baseball field. And I am sad to say you have embarrassed him by the way that you played today. Whoa. That is the kind of idea that Jesus is trying to communicate. He is challenging our propensity, our, our desire to be individuals. He's challenging us to begin to think about the fact that we are corporate. We are the family of God there are other people in the church and we should be concerned for them Jesus is challenging the, us by simply saying our father but if you notice he does say father And the question is how in the world does Jesus what does he want us to understand about the nature of God and the fact that God is our father how does that work but before we get into that, I have to say two things first because our culture is rapidly getting more and more wacky. I don't know if you noticed. So I need to say a couple things real quick to kind of set set uh, the, the trajectory of this. When Jesus says our father, we have to understand that the Bible consistently refers to God as father and Jesus as son. Those are masculine words. The Bible consistently uses masculine pronouns and masculine titles to describe God the Father and God the Son. In fact, if you read the Gospels, you would see that Jesus refers to God as his Father over 170 times. So recently what's happened is there's been a movement in so-called Christianity to eliminate the male pronouns of God. And instead to supplement them or, or to totally substitute them with inclusive language. So one of the translations of the Bible that was produced by Oxford They start the Lord's prayer like this, our father, mother in heaven. Now, the reason why I don't think that's a good idea is not because I'm some sort of like traditionalist and I need to get with the times because history is moving and what side of history do you want to be on? Instead, I want to say, no, 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 God spoke to us in a book. (laughs) And I don't think we should be so audacious to suggest to God that we can improve upon the way that he is. You see what I'm saying? Or the way Alistair Begg put it, Pastor Alistair Begg, he says this, we dare not tamper with God's self-revelation. That's what the Bible is. God has revealed himself to it. He said we dare not tamper with it in order to please the demands of contemporary society. These demands are emerging in large measure from those who do not accept the Bible's authority or its inspiration. And when we view the Bible with humility and with an average intelligence, it is impossible for us to evade the fact that the Bible consistently uses Father as the designation for the first person of the Trinity. In other words, if we want to tamper with this and say, I don't like Father, it's too masculine, I'm going to use another word. What we're basically saying is, I will take God's word that he has revealed himself by, and I will alter it to fit my desires. I don't think that's wise. The second thing I need to say is this, and this is much more pastoral and much more sensitive. I've come across people who have a negative reaction when they think about God being a father. And the reason is because their earthly father was a terrible person. Their earthly father was abusive in some kind of way. And so the notion of God being a father is repulsive. Dr. R.C. Sproul has helped me so much on this to answer more pastorally and sensitively. Here's what he writes. He says, when I talk to someone who is having difficulty using the word Father, I usually advise them, as hard as it may be, to focus on the word that comes before it, our. Because our Father is not your Father. Our Father is not the Father who violated you. Our Father is not your Father who failed you. Our Father is in heaven. Our Father has no abuse in Him. And our Father will never violate you. And I love the distinction. Make sure that we understand that God is our Father and He's a particular kind of person He is not your individual father who is a particular kind of person. That distinction is hard, but it's necessary. But how is it that God becomes our father? How is it that we become his children? It's what the Bible calls adoption. Now I'm going to reintroduce you to this concept from Galatians chapter 4. We spent a long time going through the book of Galatians, so I want to remind you of Galatians chapter 4. And there, the Apostle Paul writes about adoption. He says this But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that, here's the purpose of redemption, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, I know it's, it may be kind of a, a put off to some ladies here who are thinking, oh man, what about adoption as daughters? But you have to remember the context in which this is written. At this time, only sons were legal heirs of their father's wealth. So to be adopted as a son is, in other words, to say you are adopted into a family where you become the legal heir of all that is your father's. So all that God has to offer is rightly yours, men and women. And that's what 1 Peter 3 talks about. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way because they are co-heirs of grace. We're in this together. We receive by adoption our inheritance together, both men and women. And because we are sons through adoption, legal heirs receiving inheritance, God, verse 6, has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, the doctrine of adoption is that God the Father sent God the Son to live, to die, and to rise again in order to secure our adoption into God's family. And so, God is our Father. Jesus is our brother. And through adoption, the church is our brothers and sisters. And we are to consider the church the family of God. So, when we repent of our sins and we believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, And in so doing, when we receive the Holy Spirit, which places us in Christ by faith, and we are adopted into God's family and included into the church. When that happens, then we have the nearness of God in that through that Holy Spirit that we've been given, we can cry out to God, you are our father. And unless you have the Holy Spirit, which enables you to call God your father through repentance and belief in Jesus, you cannot rightly call God your father. God may very well be your creator, but he is not your daddy. It's reserved only for those who have the Holy Spirit. And you receive the Holy Spirit through repentance and belief in Jesus. Now, how do you know if you're indeed a child of God? Well, Romans 8 helps us, verses 15 to 17. The Apostle Paul continues on, he says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery when you repented and believed the gospel. You received a spirit, but it wasn't the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so the Holy Spirit bears witness in our own hearts to the fact that we are indeed adopted by God. And how we know that we're adopted by God and we have the Holy Spirit, that is the question that many people wrestle with. And they try to answer that question by looking at the performance of their own life. And they will say things like this, have I prayed enough? Have I read the Bible enough? Do I go to church enough? And am I serving enough? And am I in a small group enough? Am I this, this, this? And they just keep naming it. And if they accumulate all of these check boxes and if they can accumulate enough, then they can confidently say, yeah, I'm pretty sure, I'm a child of God. Until tomorrow, and then you wake up and you do something stupid, and now all of a sudden you're like, I don't know if I'm saved anymore. Now here's the reality. Salvation comes to those who repent and believe. (laughs) That's it. So if you want to know whether or not you're a child of God, let me ask you this question. Have you repented of your sins and believed in Jesus that he has rescued you from the wrath of God through his life, death, and resurrection? If the answer is yes, you're a child of God. Yeah, but what about my performance? Okay? You're not obeying God. So repent... And believe the gospel. Yeah, but no, no, no. Repent and believe the gospel. If every day you simply wake up understanding that apart from the grace of God, I'm nothing, and if you wake up every day understanding that the only reason why God has any affection for me is because Jesus has purchased and secured everything on my behalf, all I need to do is trust Him. If every day you simply did that, The whole idea of, I don't know, does he love me, does he not love me? You know, like when you pick a daisy and you're like, does he love me, love me not. God's not like that. Jesus purchased God's affections for you. All you have to do is trust. Day by day. Because God dwells with the repentant. Remember that? Isaiah 57. God dwells with the contrite, the repentant. And so our Father, this kind of concept, here's how Dr. Al Mohler summarizes it. He says, In these two small introductory words, Jesus reminds us of the gospel and the gracious disposition God has towards us. The God who delivered us from our sins is also the Father who loves us and welcomes us. The God who saved us by the work of Jesus on the cross is the same God who invites us to become part of his family. The God who so graciously spoke to us in and through Jesus now remarkably invites us to come to speak to him in prayer so in christ god is close to us in christ and because of christ god is imminent he's near us but god is also transcendent we see this in the next two words in heaven so remember we keep these two things juxtaposed big word it just means next to each other so our father who is in heaven God is transcended. He is in heaven. Heaven isn't like a a location. Heaven is describing the rule or the reign and the power of God. God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now, what it means for God to be in the heavens is basically for God to be king and ruler over all things. And one of my favorite uh, examples of this in Scripture comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 4. You probably remember Nebuchadnezzar, and he was forcing people to bow down to the golden image, the statue, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, they get thrown into the fiery furnace and all that. We'll talk about that in a second. But if you remember, as a punishment, God took away Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom and made his mind, his rational capabilities like that of an animal. And so Nebuchadnezzar is living out in the field eating grass like an animal. And that's God's punishment. But then God restores his rational capabilities and gives him the kingdom back. And Nebuchadnezzar, here's what happens, verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar repented of his sin. His eyes went to heaven, he repented, and then God restored him. He says, and I bless the Most High, and I praise and honor him who lives forever. And this is how Nebuchadnezzar understands God. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand. Or say to him, what have you done? In other words, God reigns. From everlasting to everlasting, his kingdom knows no end. God does whatever God pleases, for God is God and no one else is God. And whatever God plans to do, he accomplishes because no one can ever push back on God's hand. It says no one can stay God's hand and no one can say to God, what have you done? What are you thinking? Because God is God. He is sovereign. God is also ruler and king. He is transcendent. He has total dominion and authority over all things. And therefore, what does this have to do with prayer? Because this is how God is or who God is, that means when we pray, we have all the more confidence in coming to God to pray because literally, God is the most powerful being in the universe. And no one, can thwart or change or do anything to God outside of God's own will. So think about that. You come to God and say, God, I'm praying according to your will. And nobody can change God's will. God can do whatever God wants to do. That should give you confidence to pray whatever you want to pray. Because God can do it. And so we see this with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow down and worship the golden image. And so here's what we see in Daniel 3, verse 16 to 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. You want to throw us into the fiery furnace? Go for it. i are not saying nothing. Verse 17, if this be so, you can throw us in. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. I love that. If we ended there, we would all say, oh, man, we should pray and just trust God's capability and ability. He can do all things. He's powerful and glorious. Just trust him. God will do it. But then we also have the next verse, verse 18. But if not, but if he doesn't deliver us. If we are thrown into the fiery furnace, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And I love this because this is the kind of model prayer that I think you and I can incorporate into our own lives whenever we face struggles or persecution or hardship of any kind cancer diagnosis, disease, death. Do you see the three parts that these boys were praying? God is able. God will save, and if not, blessed be the name of the Lord. It would sound something like this. God, I've just been diagnosed with cancer. I know that you are able to heal me. I'm confident in your will to heal me. But even if you don't heal me, I will praise you anyway. Because one way or another, you will be healed. Though your body may succumb to cancer, God has promised you're getting a new body anyway. And God is going to deliver you one way or another. He is willing. He is able. And even if he doesn't do it the way you think, blessed be the name of the Lord. And if we prayed like that, brothers and sisters, ooh boy, who knows what will happen. Then Jesus gives us our first petition. Hallowed be your name. This is the request. What in the world does hallow mean? It means to regard as holy. With this understanding, what it means to hallow is to not make something holy, but it is to make the holy thing known. And so what we are praying is that God's name, which is holy, would be known as holy. Not made holy, but known as holy. Because God is holy. We remember this. There's only one characteristic of God that is repeated three times in succession Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Many people say, yes, but God is love. Yes, but nowhere in the Bible, love, love, love. You don't ever see it. What stands above all things is God's holiness. God is holy. And as Pastor Josh wrote in the workbook on page 34, Jesus wants us to pray for God's name to be honored as holy in our churches, in our families, and in our communities. That's what Jesus is asking for us to pray. God would you be known as holy in every aspect of our lives. Now how does this work? I think what this means is simply this, that we are praying for the sanctification of of the church. Sanctification is the word to be set apart or to be holy. And so what it means for God's name to be made known as holy in our families, in our churches, and in our communities is that through the people of God who are being sanctified, that is being set apart and made holy through the spirit of God, that we would in our families, in our communities, in our churches, we would put on display the glorious name of God. So that when people watch the way in which we live, they will behold not just our obedience, but they will behold the glory of God himself. So that as we are sanctified, as we are living in obedience and and becoming more and more holy, that through our obedient life, the very name of God will be treasured and people will see God as holy and regard God as holy because his people are holy. And so when we pray, our Father, In heaven, hallowed be your name, what we're doing is we're praying for the church to become sanctified. And the church is us. I love what the Apostle Paul does in Ephesians 5. He uses marriage as a metaphor to help us understand how much Jesus loves his church, the bride of Christ. He writes this in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why did he give himself up for her, for the church? So that he might sanctify her, make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And so Jesus cleanses us by the spirit and by his word and the preaching and teaching and, and praying and singing of his word. And why do we do that? So that Jesus might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus purchased for himself a people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. And he's made them a kingdom and priests to serve our God forever. And this is the bride of Christ called the church. And Jesus desires his church to be a spotless bride, to be wrinkle-free, to be glorious and radiant and adorned in splendor. And so when we pray, hallowed be your name, what we're praying is for the church, for one another to become sanctified. I pray that you will be sanctified, brothers and sisters. I pray that you will be more like Jesus. That's my prayer for you. And so whether we're eating or drinking or studying or singing or preaching or praying or witnessing or working or vacationing, whatever we're doing, we're doing all these things for God's glory to be put on display through how we live. Because God's glory is manifested directly by the way in which we live as his redeemed people. We do not add glory to God. We just simply reveal the glory that God already is through how we live. Now, what is in a name? Because he says, let your name be holy. Remember, names are like reputations. It used to be said of old that if you had a good name, that means you had a good reputation. You want to make a good name for yourself. People talk about that in the business world. You use a small business. You need to get your name out there. And you need to make sure you have a good name, reputation. When God introduced himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, there was a very interesting exchange that happened. God tells Moses, you're going to lead my people out of the bondage of Egypt. Moses had a few uh, questions. One of them was this, verse 13. has sent me to you. This is my name forever, Yahweh. God says, I am who I am. I will be what I will be. I is who I is. (laughs) However you look at it, what God is saying is, I am totally distinct and separate from any category you can even comprehend my name is yahweh i am god no wonder he says in exodus chapter 20 verse 7 you shall not take the name of yahweh your god in vain for yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain now i know we teach our kids you know don't take the lord's name in vain that means don't cuss but there's more going on here if it's true That God's people, in the way in which they live, reveal the glory and the holiness of God, and God's name is holy. Then, if we are living disobedient lives, then we are taking the Lord's name and we are showing the Lord's name to be holy as pure vanity. So, it's not only what we say, but it's also the manner in which we live. If we live intentionally disobedient, we are taking the Lord's name in vain. We are saying, Yahweh, who is holy, He's my God, but I don't care. I'm my God. I do what I want to do. America. But we have to remember God does everything for His name. We see this in Psalm 2511. This is one of my favorite prayers of repentance. If you ever asked yourself, how do I repent and believe in Jesus? I would say this is a great way to do that. Because all repentance and belief begins with prayer. And what we read is, for your name's sake, Yahweh, pardon my guilt, for it is great. In other words, for the sake of your name and glory and reputation and holiness, Yahweh, would you forgive me of my sin? Because my sin is great. And that's the beginning of repentance and prayer. God does it for his sake. Look at this in Isaiah 48. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I've refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And so God redeems and God saves for his own sake. For the sake of his own glory. For the sake of his own reputation. For the sake of his own name. God saves and redeems us. God does all things for his glory. For there is no other glory that, he's, that, that could comp, be competitive or comparable to God. God is just other. He is who he is. And he says, my glory I will not give to another. I won't give it to you or you or you. It's my glory. And I'm jealous for my glory. And we often say, "Well, why is God like that? It seems like he's an egomaniac. Well, who would you want God to have as his greatest treasure? There can't be anything that God treasures more than God, or else God is not God. Whatever he treasures is more, and therefore God. These are deep waters. Let's move on. (laughs) Ezekiel 36, where God promises the new covenant. He says this in verse 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you come. Brothers and sisters, if we get the notion that my disobedience has no effect on God or the church, we're mistaken. There's a, as, as popular in our culture, there's a butterfly effect. Your disobedience is going to affect me somehow, some way. Because somebody knows somebody who knows somebody who knows Kevin Bacon who knows somebody who knows somebody. And eventually, somebody will come to visit Golden Hills Community Church, hear me preach about these things, and they will conclude, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about because I know someone who lives this way. And they live in Massachusetts. And you're like, well, how? That's why the apostle Peter writes this in 1 Peter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, read into that, adoption. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you are adopted by Jesus, or through Jesus, we should be obedient children, for we bear the family name. Jesus identifies by this very name he says before Abraham he said Abraham looked for or longed for the days that that you guys are experiencing the religious leaders are going wait a minute dude verse 57 John 8 you're not yet 50 years old and and have you seen Abraham Jesus said to them truly truly I say to you before Abraham was I am Jesus is standing in front of everyone going, hey, guys, I just want to let you know I'm Yahweh. I'm the everlasting God. I'm the one who has no beginning and no end. I know everything. I am the powerful one, the creator, the ruler, the king, the majesty, the dominion. I'm the one who reigns and rules over all things. I'm the king of kings and the Lord of lords. I am. And they're going, mm, not so much. And they, what do they do? Next verse, they pick up stones to throw at him because they knew that he was claiming to be God. And they wanted to kill him so how do we summarize the first petition here's how i would put it in my own words the first petition our father in heaven hallowed be your name is that we as the church we are praying that we would be sanctified people who are on mission for the glory of god that's what our prayer is we are praying for each other and ourselves to be sanctified people who are put on mission for the glory of God. And I say that because of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And here you're going to see all these elements put together. Verse 18, Jesus came to them and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me show you transcendence and imminence. Verse 18, transcendence. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Imminence, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me show you how we are to make disciples who identify with the name. He says this in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Because you remember baptism is where we publicly profess that we are Christ's and he is ours. And so we're to be baptized into the name, not plural, names, singular, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we are to be a sanctified people who obey God. Look at this in the rest of verse 20, the beginning. And we are to teach them, these new disciples, to observe, to be obedient to all that I have commanded you. In other words, what we're praying in the Lord's Prayer in the first petition is quite simply this. God, we know that you are transcendent. We know that you are also imminent. And we're asking that you would sanctify your church so that we would be the kind of people who bring you glory and honor. And you have set us on mission to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who will also bear your name so your family will grow and increase. And we know all along the way your glory is our greatest aim, but we know you're with us in the nitty-gritty every day. And so we're going to trust you that you're going to come through for us. And that's how we pray. Hallowed be your name. Now, what do we do in communion? It's communion Sunday. What are we doing in communion? Here's what we're doing in communion, we are taking the bread and the cup and we are reminding ourselves that all of this was made possible because Jesus came to live, die, rise, and he's coming back again in a body. And by his blood that was shed on the cross, we are purified from our sins and we are purchased. And also, because of the body and the blood of Jesus, we are adopted, and therefore God is our Father and we are his people. And so today, what we're gonna do as a church is we're gonna come to the Lord and we're going to hold in our hands this bread and this cup to remind ourselves of our own adoption by the Holy Spirit through the work of Christ. So Father, I ask that as we come to the communion table, that you would meet with us, That you would teach us, that you would remind us, and that you would press in our hearts the truth that you are our Father and you are in heaven. So God, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.